Welcome. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin, or if you're joining us online at our website. Please open your Bibles to the 32nd Psalm. It's not where we'll be staying incredibly long, but it's where we'll start. And as you turn there, let me uh, give you some indication of what we're doing this morning, where we're going in the future. We just concluded the last two verses of the Epistle of James. We've been studying concurrently James and Psalm 119 over the last 14 months and just came to the end of Psalm 119. Last week, we came to the end of James. And if you'll remember, the passage in James we looked at were the last two verses. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And we looked at the great, glorious work of restoring, going after, bringing back wandering brothers and sisters. But I also remember mentioning that there was so much caught up in that one little phrase, and someone brings him back. James doesn't tell us how that works. It just tells us it's happened. And we in our own church body have, have seen the goodness of this. But I thought it would be good this morning to go a little further on this topic, to go a little broader, to not just limit ourselves to James, but look a little more at what the New Testament has to say. Specifically, the question of how do I know when I need to go speak to a brother or sister? How do I know? I remember after becoming a, a new Christian, wrestling with that. I guess initially I sort of assumed you just know you'd get a tingling feeling your spider sense would go off or something. And I'm guessing for many people that's how it works. We, we know that there are times we need to confront, address sin in a believer's life. And, and we just sort of go when we think we need to go. Then I went to the master's college. And there I encountered some teaching from Pastor John MacArthur, who I'm citing here, even though I don't agree with him. Primarily because of how much I do respect him. I think he's a godly man. I think he's been very faithful in many ways. But John MacArthur puts into words in his book, Forgiveness, what I think many people in practice do. Um, he cites 1 Peter 4, 8, which says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And he takes that phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, to explain the process of overlooking, forgiving, not dealing with small, petty offenses and sins in the body. Let me just read one quote from that. Um, he asks the question, are we obligated to confront one another for every paltry misdeed? Scripture, he says, gives us another principle for dealing with the vast majority of petty infractions. Overlook the offense. Forgive unilaterally unconditionally grant pardon freely and unceremoniously love demands this then he quotes first peter 4 8 keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins and when i first came across that i thought helpful somebody's given me a biblical framework to sort of put into practice how to approach this and then i went to a biblical counseling class with dr stuart scott most of you who've done premarital with me, at least the husbands, have read. This is one of the best books on marriage I'm aware of. And Stuart Scott has an appendix at the back dealing with this issue. And I remember explicitly in class when he taught on this. And it really, I think, 
help shed clear biblical light on this. Um, So we're going to start, because the hinge point is that James, of course, uses that phrase, covers a multitude of sins, that Peter uses. Um, And so the question we're going to look at this morning and try to answer is when, how do I know when I need to go talk to my brother, my sister? How do I know when I need to go address something? Um, is it is it loving or ever loving to know of sin and, and not do anything? Can it be a loving thing to, to cover it, to overlook it? Um, so let's let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll move on. Lord God, I pray that you'd give us insight and clarity. Help me to speak clearly. Um, I pray that you would make us bold and loving and zealous in how we guard one another, that you would use us as your hands and feet in the great rescue mission, not only rescuing unbelievers, but rescuing sheep who begin to stray. Lord God, um, help us not to fear man, but to fear you. In Jesus' name, amen. Part of the reason why I brought this up here is I think James, in the passage we studied last week, is the best corrective to First Peter. Um, in English, it may sound, love covers a multitude of sins, like... No, see, there it is. Love just looks the other way. But we saw even last week in James that covering sin is actually the consequence, the result of someone being called to repentance and returning. I'll I'll read again. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In James, and my point is this, the biblical expression that sins are covered doesn't speak to not dealing with sin, but the happy consequence when sin has been confessed and dealt with. If you're in Psalm 32, let me show this to you in its first occurrence in the Bible. Psalm 32, as far as I can tell, is the first place this expression comes up, sins being covered. And we can't be certain this is about the time of David and Bathsheba, although that certainly fits. But I think we can get some clear understanding here in Psalm 32. A mass skill of David... Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So, first observation, in the parallelism used, David is not naming multiple blessings, but he's naming one blessing multiple ways. His transgression is forgiven. His sin is covered. The Lord does not count iniquity against him, and there is no more deceit in his spirit. So David's equating covering with forgiveness. And then we get some backstory. Maybe the Lord just graciously chose to not confront or challenge David and just forgave him. That's not, that's not at all what happened. For when I kept silent, he writes, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer salah. So David had committed some sin. Possibly this is recounting the murder of Uriah, his adultery of Bathsheba. And he kept silent. And God's disciplining hand came upon him. Bringing him, in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David begins the psalm by celebrating this blessing, but we then learn he only experienced this blessing after discipline was applied, and then he confessed to the Lord. So I think, here's your blank here. Is it, does love covering sin mean to overlook it? 
No, sin, this is the way the Bible uses the expression, sin can only be covered after it has been confessed. That's the Bible's meaning of the phrase when it talks about sins being covered. It actually links back to the mercy seat and the blood of the sacrifice being um, spread and covering the altar. I think that's the picture of the word picture going on there. Um, let, me, let me read a quote from Stuart Scott. Stuart Scott's very helpful book, not Stuart Scott, Paul Tripp, um, Instruments in the Deemer's Hand. My men's group is going through this. He speaks to this. The Bible repudiates covering sin with a facade of silence. It teaches that those who love will speak, even if it creates tense and upsetting moments. So, that's, that's to answer the first question. But let's go a little further then. I, I don't think, in other words, to simplify what I'm saying thus far, I, I don't think First Peter 4.8 means what um, Pastor MacArthur thinks it means. I would, I would disagree there. That if, if we'd let James, the clearer passage, inform the less clear passage, First Peter, and in James it's clear the covering comes after someone goes and brings the wanderer back. In Psalm 32 it's clear David experienced the blessing of covering only after discipline and then confession. Covering speaks to the state of affairs when it's done, it's finished, it's resolved, we can move on, we don't have to talk about it anymore. But let me, but let me go a step further. I think Jesus' teaching on this is clear. My, my, I'll lay my cards on the table. I believe, I think it's critical for us, that when you know, know, not suspect, not think, know of clear sin, another body member, especially members of this body, because we're to watch out for each other's discipleship and faithfulness, that when that happens, Jesus is clear, the second greatest commandment is clear, the Bible is clear, you have an obligation to, to go talk to them in a loving and appropriate way. I, I don't think there are exceptions to that. I'm going to try to deal first with proving that, and then dealing with some objections. But if you'd be so kind as to turn to Matthew 18, I want to start with Jesus is clear. And I could just say the New Testament is clear, but I'd like to make this as simple as possible. This isn't the result of some complicated chain of reasoning, some inference. Just read what Jesus says, and I think what he says is plain and clear, and then I just say, do that. And here's your blank. Jesus gives us a plain command with no exceptions. With no exceptions. Matthew 18. Now notice, before our passage, is the parable of the lost sheep. And the shepherd goes and leaves the 99 to go after. And then verse 15, if your brother sins, some Bibles then say against you, some don't, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. There you go. It's plain, straightforward, without exception. You're blank there. If your brother sins, go show him his fault. That's what King Jesus says. In Luke 17, turn, turn over there. I'll try not to get you to turn to too many passages, but we'll be looking at a couple this morning. Jesus says something very similar in Luke 17, 3 and 4. We looked at this even last week because it has the the, the word return, restore in it, that's in James. Luke 17, 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Again, clear, 
direct, not complicated. What, what I'm trying to say is, I think what I'm arguing is just taking Jesus at face value. Just taking Jesus at face value. Here, if your brother sins, rebuke him. This is also makes it clear this isn't fundamentally a pastoral duty. This is just a body duty. If, you, if you're naming people in this room as your brothers and sisters, if you've joined together in this local body, we have a responsibility for each other. Insofar as I'm a member of this church, I have that responsibility. But it's not a particular responsibility by being an elder or pastor. Um, moreover, and I've got to move on because I've got a lot of ground to cover here. Jesus tells us how. Because we all know confrontation, correction can be done wickedly, corruptly, in anger, with impatience, with assumptions. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you'll be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eyes. What's Jesus correcting here? Hypocritical judging. I've got a big problem in my life that I'm not dealing with, and I'm going after a comparatively small problem in your life. But keep reading. Jesus is not prohibiting correction. He's just making sure it's done properly. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus has no problem with specks being taken out of, only when it's not done hypocritically. I think one of the reasons we don't necessarily want to deal with sin in others is we'd first have to deal with sin in ourselves. If I like my log right where it is, one solution is just don't deal with sin. And so Jesus warns against that. He tells us to not do it hypocritically. In Matthew 18, you may have seen in verse 15 that it's to be done privately. Great concern is given that this not become an issue of gossip. It's not going out to the body. Go talk to your brother privately without gossip, one-on-one. Don't share it as a prayer request. Um, I, I could add another point here. First Timothy 5 makes it clear also that we, we talk to people in different ways. We don't address everyone the same way. Listen to 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers. I talk to different people, give my relationships to them in different ways. The way I might go try to talk to an older godly man is going to be different than I'm going to talk to a peer that is potentially different than how I'm going to deal with someone younger than me. And and so there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. To, to caring for the body in that way. You could factor in those principles as well. But to summarize, I believe Jesus has given us, his people, a clear instruction. When you're dealing with sin, I'll deal with some qualifiers in a few minutes, but when you know of sin in the body, amongst brothers and sisters, especially in the local body, you are commanded by Jesus to go and help restore them, to go speak frankly with them, to go rebuke them or show them their fault and talk to them. I, I think that is a clear, unqualified command. So let me, let, me deal with, um, let me deal with some potential objections, two of them. most common one I get when I talk to someone about this is, you can probably guess it, if that's right, we would be doing this constantly, right? In fact, that's one of the reasons MacArthur gives for why he, um, he thinks this is the right way to handle things, to cover sin. He says, 
Um, If we were obligated to confront one another for every paltry misdeed, we would be doing little else. And I agree, that's not right. Meaning, it is not the state of affairs where God wants us running around 24 hours a day dealing with sin. I fully agree that if if the consequence of this were that result, that would be a, a marker that something might be amiss. But let me say this. I believe that you and I do not know of sin nearly as often as we think we do. I believe that you and I don't know of sin nearly as often as you think. Um, In fact, I'd say about 90 to 95% of the things you think of as sin with other people are suspicions or possibly are, are, are odd things. But most of the time, we need to know the motives of the heart. What were they thinking when they did that? What were they thinking when they said that? I mean, th- think, think through this. Apart from knowing motives, how often can you honestly say without any qualification, you know, that, that was sinful. I suppose if you're with somebody and you show up and they clearly lie, they say, oh, sorry, we just came from the mall, and you know they didn't come from the mall. Or in some extreme situation where someone loses their temper, temper and is screaming or hits somebody, um, Maybe, maybe some other examples might be gossip. I think that's clear. Like, well, you shouldn't be telling me this. Or possibly coarse language or a crude joke. Or, or possibly someone confessing their sin to you. They tell you proudly about how they cheated on their income tax. But honestly, apart from those types of scenarios, most of what I'm dealing with, most of what I think you're probably dealing with, is not knowing of sin. In which case, Jesus' command doesn't apply Jesus says, if your brother sins, if it's clearly sin, if there's no question about it, you got to go talk to him. I, I try to practice that, and I'm not constantly confronting people. Not constantly confronting people at all. So I don't think that objection is valid. Moreover, point two here, love hopes and believes all things. I'll have a lot more to say about this in my Sunday school class. But because the vast majority, I think, of scenarios are... That, that could be bad. That's suggestive. That's odd. At that point, I think 1 Corinthians 13.7 takes over, which says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And what that means is, I should be predisposed to give my brother or sister every benefit of the doubt. I should be looking for explanations of what they're doing that would vindicate them, that would, would, would think well of them. I need to resist the urge to go to the most negative interpretation. My wife is really helpful with this because I consider myself a realist, which is a nice way of saying sometimes I'm critical. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll tell her something that happened, and I'll say, help me out here, because here's what happened, and every interpretation I'm coming up with is not flattering for this person. And she's fantastic at saying, well, maybe they were doing this, or maybe they were thinking this, or maybe. And that's what love does. Love wants the other person to not be doing wrong. And I think that should govern the vast majority of what we're dealing with. It's only when, yeah, there's no way around this. That, that was clearly sinful. That was clearly wrong. You could add another qualifier, and, and you don't have any reason to think they're dealing with it. If I'm in a men's group, and one of the guys stubs his toe and out flies a four-letter word, and Mark Sullivan, I see, pulls him aside a little later, I can certainly think Mark's probably talking to him. I don't need to. Or if I think the person themselves caught it and is dealing with it, that's, that's another issue. But if your brother or sister has sinned, clear sin, and you have no reason to think they've dealt with it, addressed it, 
I think Jesus gives you a clear command to go talk to them. And I don't think if you do that, you'll be confronting constantly. I don't think that at all. Love hopes all things and endures all things. And for all those other things that aren't clear issues of sin, let me read two other passages that I think affect this clearly. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We should be hard to offend, patient, bearing with one another, trying, striving to maintain our unity. That, that should be our default position, not suspicion. And what's that going on over there? Colossians 3, 12 to 13 puts it this way. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So, so don't think of this as some big and extreme thing. This can be as simple as you're hanging out with a friend and they share a piece of gossip with you, which I would define as anything that would cause you to think ill of somebody else. And you just turn to them and say, hey, brother, I don't, I don't know why you told me that. I don't think you should have. It can be as simple as that. It can be as simple as, as hearing someone complaining and grumbling and speaking ill of their spouse in front of you and saying, you shouldn't be speaking that way. It doesn't have to be a, thus saith the Lord as he lives it, it, it's just gentle. The way Jesus talks about this, I think, assumes this is taking place in our relationships normally. It doesn't have to be some big mountaintop experience. I think this should be what um, characterizes our relationships. Love hopes all things, believes all things. It gives the other the benefit of the doubt. Let me give you a, a, another reason why I, I think uh, that the solution advocated by John MacArthur and others, Jay Adams, um, has, and I'm really respect Jay Adams, argues the same thing, is weak is because if you break sins into two categories, which you're kind of forced to do, um, MacArthur tries to give some some, uh, qualifiers, but you're going to be left with two categories of, of coverable sins and confrontable sins, and that the Bible gives you no such um, categories or lists. Here, here's the blank. Scripture gives no list of coverable sins. And so practically, you're going to be on your own. You're going to make your own list. And I predict quite strongly your own list is going to conform more to what you're comfortable with or what you can't stand and your personal pet peeves than anything else. And MacArthur tries to guard against this, but I think it fails. He writes, Speaking of, okay, what sins do I need to confront? Sins that require confrontation because of their potential for harm to the sinning person include serious doctrinal error. How do I know if it's serious, moderate, minor? Sinful habits, destructive tendencies, or any other transgression that poses a serious danger to the offender's spiritual well-being. To which I say, how do, how do I know? That's a serious, is that a serious sin? We're going to have to end up with something like venial and mortal sins. And there's nothing to prevent the person from concluding an ongoing adultery is coverable. There's no reason they couldn't conclude that. Um, 
I don't for a second think that Pastor MacArthur would be, advocate that. I'm just saying that even with those qualifiers, the sky's the limit for you to come up with your own list. Um, I, I get his desire to not have a body where everyone's just running around suspiciously. What did you say? What were you thinking? What's going on? I think a far more biblically faithful way of dealing it would simply be, look, you go talk to them when you know you're dealing with sin. And there's no question about it. And otherwise, love hopes all things, believes all things, bears all things. I, th- I think that gives us a much more objective and clear standard. A much more objective and clear standard. Which then brings me um, to potential objection number two. Actually, not quite yet. Sorry, not quite yet. One, one other thing I want to point out with the trying to put your lists of coverable and not coverable sins. Um, another reason why I think there's a bad idea is because when the scripture gives lists of sins that exclude people from the kingdom of God, I think some of the things on those lists might surprise you. If you were trying to make your list of, okay, what are the big, bad, serious sins? Would they include things like 1 Corinthians 5.11? But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or as an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Or listen to Ephesians 5, 3 to 6. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. Crude joking made Paul's list. So if you're going to try to come up with your own list of the things you go talk to me about, the things you don't, I'd be very skeptical that your list would include all the things Scripture deals with. I don't see how to get at that. I rather think a more faithful way of dealing with this is you deal with known sin, clear known sin. You're not trying to be suspicious. You're not trying to be the spiritual Gestapo. But when God reveals something clear to you, you see it, you become aware of it, then you have an obligation to go speak to your brother that Jesus means what he says and says what he means. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Which then brings us to potential objection number two. What about showing grace? And this also has the appearance of sounding godly and spiritual who doesn't want grace. But I think it has another fundamental misunderstanding. Um, I I think when we think of what about showing grace, we're not thinking of correction. We're thinking of correction when it happens poorly. The explosive response when you go talk to someone and they yell and scream at you when you guys get in a big argument. Not those little corrections. Not those, hey, brother, brother. I don't think what you said was good. Oh, thanks. I would think that's a grace. But Psalm 145, verse 1, 5, sorry, 141, 5, I think settles the issue. Listen, listen to Psalm 141, 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. A righteous rebuke is a kindness, which means... We cannot pit correction and rebuke against kindness and grace. It's not as though sometimes we deal with sin and sometimes we show grace. Psalm 141.5, righteous rebuke is a kindness. It is a kindness. We, we can't pit them against each other. 
Was, was it a kindness of God to bring you to repentance and faith in Jesus? Or was it harsh? Next, rebuke done rightly is loving. Now, I want you to listen in the Proverbs what they contrast correction or rebuke with. And it's not grace and it's not kindness. It's things like flattery, hidden love. Let me, let me read a couple of these to you. Um, we, re, rebuke done rightly is loving. Proverbs 27, 5. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. I don't think when it talks about hidden love, it's naming a good thing. Proverbs 25, 11 through 12. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Those are good things. Those are delightful things. Those are beautiful things. The proverb is trying to show you. It also gives the implication, we might have a hard time believing this, that a wise, thoughtful reproof is a beautiful and precious thing. A beautiful and precious thing. And Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. I think here's the biblical idea. Somebody's got a problem, and they're not aware of it. And let's, let's make this an analogy. I've heard uh, Ted Tripp use. I eat a bagel in the morning. I get a big blob of cream cheese on my mustache. I got a small problem. It's not a big deal. It's not going to kill me yet. But I got this big blob of cream cheese on my mustache. And I show up here, and I'm greeting people. And people think, I don't want Pastor Jeremy to feel bad. I don't want him to feel embarrassed. So I let him keep walking around with it. Um, and, and you're not telling me, okay, you got my, my sister. We see family is good for this. My sister, I got some dust on my sports jacket this morning, and she pointed it out to me, and I was able to go take care of it. And I didn't say, stop being so harsh and judgmental. I thanked her. I thanked her. There's a sense of flattery. When you know something's wrong, but you're treating them like everything's fine. If I had the big mud stain on my jacket or the blob of cream cheese, looking good, Pastor Jeremy. You're flattering me. When your brother or sister, the Lord has shown you some weakness, some area of sin, something that's going on in their life, and you know things are not all good, and you act like everything's fine, you're not loving them, you're flattering them, according to this proverb. Rebuke done rightly is truly loving. Truly loving. Which brings us to the next point. I think um, if you turn, turn to 2 Timothy 2, this is an important passage. 2 Timothy 2, 24. I'm convinced that the only reason we ask this question, I'm convinced the only reason we ask, what about grace? It's because we're already, and here's your blank, Failing, We fear going because we fail to hope. We fear going because we fail to hope. I, I think the only reason we ask about grace is because we're convinced it's not going to go well. I don't think you'd ask that question if you were convinced it would go well. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, clearly laying out my responsibility and God's responsibility. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses 
and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So thought experiment. The Lord has shown you some sin in your brother or sister. Maybe you've been in their house and you've seen a husband speaking harshly to his wife. Maybe, maybe you've seen some other thing. And an angel of the Lord appeared to you. An angel from the Lord came and said, Hello, the Lord wanted me to tell you that if you go talk to your friend, the Lord God will grant them repentance. You'll find more favor with them than if you flattered. They'll deal with this. They'll grow. Their family will be better. The body of Christ will be better. Imagine the senselessness of responding to the angel. But what about grace? You wouldn't think that. If you were hopeful, perhaps God has shown this to me because God intends to grant them repentance. You wouldn't be asking this question. It's only because we are not hopeful. It's only because we don't think it's going to go well. It's only because I know him. They're not going to listen to me. Which I think, moving into our final point, the second greatest commandment, is an indication you probably should have gone to them a while ago because you're starting to judge them and think ill of them in your heart. We fear going because we fail to hope. But before we get to the second point, I want to give um, two, two other examples and, a, and a, read a quote. The other reason why I think it's important to deal with this and not cover and forgive quietly and not say anything is it can set the stage for some really, really awful and ugly hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Let me, let me give you an analogy. Let me give you an example. Imagine your best friend who normally invites you and your family over to every time they have a barbecue, they invite you over and you invite them over. You and your best friend had just gotten into a disagreement. It wasn't super heated, but you wondered if perhaps his feathers were ruffled. And then, that next Saturday, he has a barbecue and he invites three families over, families who are friends with your family and your kids. He doesn't invite you. And you say to yourself, oh, I guess, I guess he did take offense. Message received. Somebody's upset with me. But then, as you sit thinking about it, you think, it does seem a little petty, doesn't it? I mean, to, to leave my family out, to send such a clear message to me, just because he didn't like the fact that I thought he spent too much on his shoes. I'm just coming up with something silly. Then you say to yourself, you know what? I'm just going to forgive and cover it. He's being petty. He's being vindictive and spiteful. I, I'll just cover and forgive. Now imagine six or seven months later, you and your friend are talking, and this comes up. And you say to them, you know, I, I know you must have been upset about what I said because you, know, you were so petty and not inviting me over, but I just want to let you know that I forgave you that. I covered that. And your friend says, what are you talking about? He said, no, 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 let's not talk about it. I've forgiven you. It's okay. I, I, don't, I don't think I did anything wrong, he says. And he goes on to tell you that th- that barbecue was a special th- thank you to three families that had helped him move. <laughs> and, he, and he wanted to bless them. It had nothing to do with your quarrel. It had nothing to do with your disagreement. And the entire time you've condemned the innocent... And then patted yourself on the back for being gracious and loving. That's a really ugly potential place to be. In other words, covering sin doesn't allow the person you've concluded sinned any defense or explanation. Because you never talk to them. You get to be judge, jury, and executioner. And pat yourself on the back. 
I think that's a really dangerous potential that, that, that can lead to some ugly situations. Um, the, the other thing is I don't think we actually do forgive and cover. When my wife was at Word of Life Bible Institute, um, she slept in the top bunk, and they have a rule every day you're supposed to make your bed. And the first day, without intending rebelliously not to do it, she forgot, and her roommate made her bed for her. But because her roommate never mentioned it to her, Serena didn't realize that had happened, and so the same thing happened the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Day six, this person came to Serena with the full weight of all five days before in tow. And what could have been a very simple conversation on day one, hey, I don't know if you forgot or if you weren't paying attention, but you didn't make your bed. I was happy to do it for you, but hey, you should do that became, I've been making your bed all week for you, and you're so ungrateful. Because when we cover the first time, we cover the second time, and then the fifth time rolls around, I guarantee you, you're carrying the weight of all those other times with you. I don't think it's gracious or kind to not deal with things. I don't think God designed our hearts to do that. I think if you've got clear issues of sin... You go talk to your brother. And I think the reason we fail to go to our brother is because we actually lack love. I think the reason we don't go isn't because we want to be loving. It's because we want to love ourselves. Let me read what uh, Ted Tripp says in Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. We seek to avoid uncomfortable moments. So we seek, so we see, but do not speak. We go so far as to convince ourselves that we're not speaking because we love the other person, when in reality, we fail to speak because we lack love. The truth is that we fail to confront, not because we love others too much, but because we love ourselves too much. We fear others misunderstanding us or being angry with us. We are afraid of what others will think. We don't want to endure the hardship of honesty because we love ourselves more than we love our neighbors. And you think of why we are afraid to go talk to someone. I think those are the reasons. No one enjoys someone misunderstanding you, someone being upset with you. But perhaps God will grant them repentance. But I I want to tie this also into the second greatest commandment. This this lack of love, I think, ties into that. Turn to Leviticus 19. And and I know we go here regularly. But this, this passage is absolutely paradigmatic from my understanding of relationships. It defines relationships to me. And as Serena and I and our family have tried to internalize this, it has um, really, I think, been, it's transformed interpersonal dealings. I don't know what you think of when you think of loving your neighbor as yourself, what that means. But Jesus, and I gave you all the references on the side, Jesus and Paul cite this Passage. This is the only passage I could find in my little Bible software that says, Love your neighbors yourself in the Old Testament. It's Leviticus 19. Um, this is where Jesus finds the second greatest commandment. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And when we think of loving your neighbors yourself, you might think of sacrificial love, laying down of life love. Those are great things. I want you to see in its context what Leviticus 19 has in mind. Leviticus 19. 17 to 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
Isn't that remarkable? The second greatest commandment is not fundamentally about giving money or acts of kindness. What's it fundamentally about? Interpersonal conflict. Just let's, let's look at the two sides of it. There's the not to do and the to do's, right? What are you not to do? Do not hate in your heart. Do not take vengeance or bear a grudge. You could also add, I didn't have space in the blanks, don't incur sin because of him, which is indicating when your brother has done something wrong that offends you and your brother's committed some sin, there's the real potential now, if you don't respond rightly, that you will sin in return. Don't hate him. Don't take vengeance upon him. Don't bear a grudge. Don't incur sin because of him. What should you do? What's on the positive side of the equation? Go reason frankly with him. Go have a talk. And love him. So so if you look at these two things, you, you will see that the scripture here is pitting on the one side... Not talking. And, and Tripp puts it this way. Describing this passage, what the dangers are. We fail to confront in love because, he says, we have yielded to subtle and passive forms of hatred. Embedded in the passage is a contrast between love and hatred. If you tried to illustrate this passage, it would look like this. At the center is a high plateau of love based on a commitment to honest rebuke. On either side is a dark valley of hatred. One is the valley of passive hatred, the bitterness, the resentment, the cold shoulder. And the other valley is the active hatred, the gossip, the wrath, the fury. Both are temptations and both are wrong. Leviticus 19 is clear. We must find a way to lovingly confront sin when we see it in others. If we fail to do so, we cannot console ourselves by saying, perhaps I'm not loving this person as God wants me to, but at least I do not hate him. There is no neutral ground between love and hatred. Our response to the sins of others is either motivated by the second greatest commandment or by some form of hatred. Also notice the phrase, I am the Lord. Your commitment to the second greatest commandment is rooted in your commitment to the first greatest commandment. And we know from the New Testament that the clearest indicator of how much you love and are devoted to the Lord God is how you interact with image bearers. Don't say you love God who you've not seen if you can't love your brother whom you have seen, 1 John 4.20 says. And James talks about the hypocrisy of praising God with our lips and using our tongue to attack those made in his image. I am the Lord, he says. Don't, don't slide down the slope of bitterness, resentfulness, cold shoulderness, avoidance, passive hatred. Don't slide down the slope of anger, wrath, gossip, malice. Go talk to him. Love your neighbor as yourself. And honestly, in my pastoral experience, when people come talk to me and I, it's clear they got a beef with somebody, it is one of the harder things I have to do to get people to go talk to each other. I get why this is the second greatest commandment. People are far more willing to show up to a church work day They're far more willing to sign up for the cantata and all sorts of other good deeds. This is generally speaking one of the hardest things people have doing is go having a frank conversation. And I see again and again and again the Lord bless that. The Lord indicate this is wise, good counsel. So this is the second greatest commandment. 
And the second greatest commandment in its original context is about not getting bitter, not getting angry. Go and talking to your neighbor. And Jesus cites that. And next, Jesus illustrates that. Go to Luke 10. Luke chapter 10. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Almost done. Because I want you to see this. This is what convicts and drives me. Um, part of the reason we need to go talk to our brothers for their sake, but I think Leviticus 19 makes it clear there's a danger for me that if I've concluded someone's done something wicked and wrong, if I've judged them in my heart, possibly rightly, I see a, I see a husband speak cruel words to his wife. I know what they were. That was, that was corrupt. And I don't go talk to him. I will begin to become embittered to him. I will begin to become angry with him. I will begin to avoid him. And so to guard myself from sliding down one of those slopes, I, just as much as to help him, i got to go talk to him. So, Luke 10, 25, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells a parable. But get this. The parable is illustrating Leviticus 19. Who is your neighbor? From the passage, love your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, a man was going down to Jerusalem from Jericho, and he fell among robbers. who stripped him and beat him and departed and leaving him half dead. But by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he was, came to the place and saw him passing by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus likewise said to him, You go and do likewise. So here's, here's how I want you to picture this. Here's the, the, what shows up in my mind. When I, when I identify, and a good, and a good marker that you probably, not probably, that you do need to talk to someone, that you probably needed to talk to them the last week, is when you find yourself resentful, irritable, holding on to something with somebody else, beginning to be embittered, beginning to be angry. The Lord has allowed you to see some weakness, some flaw, some failing, some sin in their life. They, you have every reason to believe, have the spirit in them. The Lord intends to restore them. But let's face it, this man on the side of the road, it's going to be a little messy helping him out. The Levite and the priest, they got places to go. And if the guy died, the priest might become ceremonially unclean by touching a dead body. I mean, it's understandable why they couldn't be bothered. But in this picture that demonstrates what love of neighbor looks like, the priest and the Levite have to picture what hatred looks like. Again, I've, I've said this before. I don't think hatred biblically means I want you to die. Hatred just means I don't care what happens to you. It's, it's too inconvenient for me. I think murder and wrath are actively I want to kill you. I think hatred's just I, I, don't, I can't be bothered. 
The Levite, the priest, walking by. God's shown you something in somebody, and you see it clearly. And it's clear sin. It's not a matter of, of personal preference or taste or individual conviction. The Lord has shown that to you. And I'm saying he showed it to you that you might be his hands, his voice, acting on behalf of the good shepherd, going after the straying one, calling them back. And you say, they won't listen to me, and they're probably to get mad at me. The equivalent of the Levite and the priest saying, I might get some blood on my clothes I might show up late to where I need to go. I can't be bothered. And you're hating them. You're hating them. And you will begin, according to Leviticus 19, to actually bear that fruit of resentment or of judgment or of bitterness on them. The Levite and the priest were unwilling to help. The Samaritan stopped and restored the man to health. And this is the language of the Bible. Galatians 6, 1 to 3, brothers... If anyone is caught in any trespass, any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You could even take Jesus' teaching, if your brother sins, rebuke him, as his own re-implementation of Leviticus 19. This should be something that happens with some regularity. It doesn't need to be an extreme event doesn't need to be an extreme event. Your last blank here. Failure to confront clear sin comes not from love, but from, I think what the Bible calls, hatred. From hatred. There is no neutral ground between love and hate. Our response to the sins of others is either motivated by the second great commandment or by some form of hatred. Or to put it another way, when you see sin in another you either act like the priest and the Levite or you act like the good Samaritan. Those are your options. So, I rejoice to be part of a body that does this. I've had faithful brothers do this to me. And those who've come and challenged me, I count some of my dearest friends. They they love my soul. They love me. I just had somebody last week come and challenge me about something they'd seen in in my home. And I'm thankful for it. This, this is how the body cares for itself. This is how we get to glory. This is how we, we make it down the straight and narrow path. Because one of us is seeing things and we're exhorting and encouraging one another day after day while it's still called today. Don't, don't allow yourself to see where a friend or brother or sister needs help, needs an exhortation, and you fail to do it. And please don't, when you fail to do it, Pat yourself on the back and say it was because you were being kind and loving. Be obedient. And let the Bible inform what love is. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to walk this tightrope, that we would not be suspicious or critical in spirit, that we would not elevate our personal preferences and convictions to the statute of law, but also, Lord, that we would not turn a blind eye to sin, to lawlessness, that we would love you and love our brother more than we love our comfort, than we love the status quo, that we would hope that you will work in your people to bring them back to you, to restore them, that we would trust in you to do what only you can, to grant repentance, but that we would be faithful to be obedient. 
Lord God, I pray that you'd give us boldness, courage, love, grace, gentleness in this. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.